Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Loren. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Mike Rick, former technical director at Manchester City, Burnley, Fulham, QPR and the Football Association of Wales to discuss his illustrious career today and bring us up to speed on what the actual role of sporting director means in the 21st century. Mike, welcome to the show. Good morning. Nice to meet you. Mike, as we begin with every guest, what was your earliest football memory? Ah, my, well, one of my earliest football memories actually coincided with something that I, I ironically, I um, I went to it last night. I went to a, a business awards dinner or yesterday afternoon, a business awards dinner in in the local in the local hotel in Chester, and it was to raise some money for hospices. But it was also all the the businesses around Chester. A friend of mine invited me, and it, it, part of the auction was a signed 1977 Liverpool. FC shirt and my kind of earliest recognition was sitting listening to the radio of Joey Jones and his and, and all his colleagues lifting the European Cup so that was and it was I actually ended up bidding and buying a shirt signed by the 1977 group so yeah that was that was really um I mean it's quite interesting the only way you could listen to that game was on the radio on a on a crackly old radio no digital no tv you know Sounding very old now, probably because I am. But that was my um, that was my first kind of real thought of. I think I hadn't been to a live game. You know, I was what was I then? I was nine, ten, eleven? You know, that kind of age. So yeah, that was the nineteen seventy seven Liverpool winning the European Cup. Listening to it on the radio, and then me now buying a signed shirt last night. Well. And you've obviously enjoyed a lustrous career. You've worked a number of different positions, coach, as academy manager. However, the one role which has really come to define who you are and your own career has been that of technical director. I mean, how would you begin to describe that role? Describe it in three different ways, Connor. Um, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I fell into the role. Um, you know, I fell into the role because it was a particular time in my career when I left Sheffield Wednesday and rejoined Mark Hughes at Blackburn. Um, because um, um, there was a guy called Terry Daracott who very sadly passed away recently. But Terry was a great guy, and he was the chief scout at, at Blackburn. And he'd, uh, he'd retired because he'd won the lottery. He actually won the jackpot on the lottery. I'm not sure how much, but he won He won the lottery. And he went in to see Mark uh, and said, listen, I'm going to retire. I'm, I'm kind of done. So Sparky phoned me up and said, do you want to come and be the, the chief scout? So I left Sheffield Wednesday and went into a completely different role, you know, scouting was chief scout. I've never done that before. Um, but on the back of that, it kind of then turned into another couple of jobs, going into Man City and then on to, on to QPR. It was a role that was pretty much new. There wasn't many people that were in this technical director role. And there was a couple of people who'd done the director of football, but everybody was getting caught up on the semantics of the name. And nobody really understood what the job itself was, you know, from the board, the owners, right the way through. Um, so I I would say over the last 10 to 12 years, that's taken shape in a very different way. You know, nowadays, it's very much easily regarded and understood what the role is. Um, but, you know, 10, 12 years ago, the role of the technical director was kind of always on the back of a scouting role. It was always about recruitment. And then it evolved over time to include more, you know, more issues to do with, you know, managing and getting the most out of the, you know, player development and the youth academy. And then 
you know, some some clubs realised they needed a specialist person that was able to look at the the long term strategy of the club. It was real football, you know, real football expertise, but at the same time supporting the manager to make sure there's the short term success. So I would say, to to come to the answer to your question, I've always regarded it as being kind of three roles, three different types of roles depending upon the club. One, you've got the kind of general manager, the football strategist, someone who very much oversees the the big strategy. So John Rudkin at Leicester, you know, John's come through academy background or Stuart Webber acknowledged, you know, Stuart came through a different background, but they very much see the overall strategy of the club, all the different departments. The second kind of role is more operations and governance. Uh, Richard Garlick, who's a, at... Um, a, a, Arsenal. Richard's got a, a legal background. You know, he was a, he was the legal counsel at West Brom before he went to the Premier League. But he's very much capable of. I mean, these aren't so exclusive just to them bits. But but generally, the second role is very much built round operations and governance. Rebecca Capel on at Tottenham. Um, I said Richard at, at, at Arsenal, but they're very they're very good, adept and in tune with, you know, governance issues to do with it, whether it's, um, and, and then a lot of clubs now call it the uh, football operator, chief operator, football operator officer. And then the third is more of a technical role. So people who've come from more of a, that sport background, whether it's coaching, whether it's player development, and that kind of role oversees more of the, you know, the technical, tactical and recruitment, which, which probably I would say in a lot of my roles, uh, my expertise in governance, you know, I'm not, that's not my background. And I kind of, I've always been very much hands-on because of my, you know, coaching and player development and coach education background and then onto recruitment. So it very much looked one of them three and, and a mixture of, and obviously and in some clubs, they have two or three of them positions working together. Um, so the, the, the job is evolving, but I would say they fall into one of them three, three roles. Absolutely illuminating insight. And we're not going back too far ago to your time at Blackburn um, within the last 15, 20 years, but not exactly the information age. And as you said yourself, there wasn't really a user manual informing you really as to how to do your job. But is it a case of there's no substitute for doing the hard work, building up that network base? Or was there anybody in those formative years, Mike, that you began to lean on and really kind of learn the profession from the inside out? Um, all of the above, you know, all, all of the above. It was very much, I mean, I, re- I remember the first week going into Blackburn. It was a chief scout role, but literally it was a desk. There was a filing cabinet full of team sheets and there was a fax machine on the floor. And the fax machine was just spewing out um, faxes from agents saying we've got the mandate for this player, that player. And there was no, there was no computer system. And I would say, you know, back then there was a, there was a couple of changes that were taking place, namely a couple of companies. So, um, there's a guy called Lee Jameson from um, uh, uh, who formed a company called Scout Seven, which then went on to be ISF. This was the first time that anybody really brought, a, a, you know, developed a company which was online, but was also then an online platform of all the players in the world, where not only could you access that information, but you could then access the information, but also put your information. Into the into the system, so I know we're you know I know it's very simple to to um, to comprehend this now, but back then everybody was kind of running around with 
everything in little black books and unwritten files or in filing cabinets. So there was a lot of good information out there, but a lot of it was in people's heads and a lot of it was in people's filing cabinets and there was no way of kind of managing all this information. So there was significant times when people like Lee Jameson came up with a company. And like everybody does, I was going through a period then where I just leaned on you know, friends and, and colleagues that I'd worked with in the game over the years. And, you know, one in particular, a guy called Barry Hunter, Barry Hunter's chief scout at Liverpool. Barry was a player at Wrexham, so I'd known Barry for a long time. And uh, we'd lost touch and just done our own thing. And I remember turning up at Newcastle. I'd gone into Blackburn and I was, I was doing a, a report up at Newcastle. And I looked down and I saw Barry Hunter on the, you know, with, with the headphones on doing something for... Um, I think it was Berkshire Radio, something like that. And I, you know, ran down to see him. You know, I hadn't seen him for a few years. How are you doing? And he said, "Yeah, you know, finished playing, finished managing, kind of just getting back involved in football." And I said to him, Do you "Fancy coming doing a bit of scouting for us?" So Barry's always been someone I've turned to now because from working for me at Blackburn and then going to Man City and then leaving Man City now and going to Liverpool, you know, people like Barry with their their background. Um, you know, just great resources. And then along the way, the more kind of jobs you do and the more you get involved in the game, you start bumping into people and you start developing relationships with people with that, not just you work with, but that you come across in the industry. Like I was saying, people like Lee Jameson, who works in the industry from a, a commercial perspective, not one of your, you know, not, not one of your um, uh, peers that work in another club. So, you know, you, you end up, you end up bumping into um, and, and crossing swords with a number of different people that you lean on at different stages in your career that, you know, that help you out and in times of trouble or, you know, people in particular, like I said before, Stuart Webber at Norwich, you know, Stu worked for me at, at QPR and he's now done an incredible job at, you know, they've had a tough season, but he's done an incredible job what they've done at Norwich. I pick the phone up all the time. You know, Steve Cooper who was a player at Wrexham when I was working there, that we worked together. You know, I pick the phone up to Steve all the time because of the incredible job he's doing at Notts, you know, at Not Nottingham Forest now. Um, and then other people that you've kind of developed a relationship in the industry, you know, Dan Ashworth and, and the likes. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I've done things. You, 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 you always tend to go to people in the industry that come from a different angle, maybe in a, you know, maybe in a, in a more commercial or technology level. I mean, I'm doing a little bit of work at the moment, consultancy work with a company called Kitman Labs. Um, incredible organization, global global reach, working in NFL, they're working in somewhere like six or 700 sports all over the, all over the world. They've got incredible insights into NFL and basketball and, and everything to do with technology and data. And, you know, so you know, turning to people inside Kitman Labs and, and the, some of the colleagues there, just, again, are, are always a great source of information. It's incredible hearing from yourself how actually tight-knit these circles actually are. And one of the many facets which I want to discuss about the actual role is that of fit and alignment and taking on a challenge, embarking upon that new project. I mean, is it a case of does the project find you or do you find the project because... You know, looking at your career, you've been involved with some organizations with truly groundbreaking and disruptive visions at the time. I'm thinking the likes of Manchester City, the likes of the FA, where you worked with the aforementioned um, Dan Ashworth, Matt Crocker, Dave Redden. Yeah, um, both is the honest answer. Um, you know, sometimes you, you're recruited through a more structured format 
whether it's you know applying for a job or whether it's um you know you 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 sort of recruited through a headhunter and then and then quite often and that's happened to me a couple of times um you know i've been i've been contacted by headhunters to you know if i'm interested sometimes them jobs have been successful sometimes they haven't um but it's also, you know, it's quite nice to build up a bit of a reputation that people from the headhunters within the industry see your, you know, your skill set, which is which is good. And then the other thing is, and, and it's the way all industries work, is the contacts and the trust that you build up with people. So, you know, I I had a great relationship from the days of the Welsh FA with Mark Hughes, Mark Bowen, you know, Eddie Nidvesky, Kevin Iscock, Glenn Hodges. And we all kind of worked together for a number of number of jobs and working with them. We all went from Blackburn to Man City, and then Man City we ended up working together at QPR. And you know, working with people you know and trust is great, but it doesn't always work out well when you know the man at the top loses his job and moves on, and then you find yourselves in a in a sticky situation. So, I've yeah, I've been really lucky that I've been brought in by you know contacts and friends and colleagues that have wanted me, uh, you know, because they, they trust me and my ability but also sometimes i've been you know recruited through more structured format and then if you're looking at the size and the scale and different ownership groups you've been working for mike obviously you've worked for a plentiful i mean is it a case of principles remain the same when you're going from the likes of manchester city with infinite resources compared to i don't know perhaps a Fulham or a QPR with less resources. Do the principles no, remain? <laughs> no, it's, there's, there's, there's various principles that you want to try and keep in terms of your, you know, your strategic approach or some of your processes that you put in place and some of the, you know, some of the structures and the roles and responsibilities. But you, you have to adapt to the, 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 the role of the, the job itself. So there's two things I always say about all jobs that you're going into. There's two things you've got to really understand on the way in purpose and clarity so what's the purpose of the ownership and the board right at the very top why they why 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 have they bought the club what do they want from the club and i you know i i talk about this an awful lot there's there's four types of clubs in the world and every club falls into one of four categories number one a global brand so you know there are what 15 to 20 true global brands you know real madrid man united liverpool man city Barcelona, Bayern Munich. Then there's the, the second category of club, which are the clubs that want to win their prospective top league. So yes, they are they are big and you know they are globally recognised, but they're not the same true global brand. So um, example, FC Copenhagen, you know, big club, great club, but you can't class FC Copenhagen the same as you can Real Madrid, but they want to win their prospective top league. Then you've got a third category, which is we just want to wait. the clubs that just their, their objective and strategy is to stay in that top top division. So you know, um, uh, and and then the fourth category, which is basically survival. Now there's obviously far more clubs in the survival bracket than there is the ones in the global brand. So when I went to Manchester City, it was really interesting. Just being bought out by Abu Dhabi, and it was in that third category. It was what can we do to stay. In, in the Premier League. That's our plan. And then Khaldun came in, the chairman, with, you know, an increasingly um, and a spectacular, like, talented group of executives on the business side. You know, Gary Cook, the chief executive, Brian Marwood, football development, Graham Wallace, finance. 
um, you know, Vicky Kloss on the on the on the media. And it was all about how do we take Manchester City from this third category of club, which was just surviving the Premier League, to become a global brand. And if you look at the journey that Manchester City's taken, Manchester City up to that point could have gone into that fourth bracket survival. If they'd got and it wasn't that many years earlier where they were in that survival bracket because they got relegated. But then what I, what I realised by going into a club like Manchester City is, and what I've done since, you've kind of got to understand that the purpose of the club, what do we want, what does the owner want from... And, and it was really clear to me, the ownership wanted to go from, we don't want to just survive in the Premier League, we want to actually win the Premier League and we want to be a global brand. Now, you know, on reflection, I left Man City and went to, to QPR and, and, you know, I made, a, uh, you know, it's, it didn't work out. And, you know, I looked back and reflect and thought, you know, I made a lot of mistakes back there. And, you know, it wasn't all down to me. But if I had the opportunity to go back and do it again, would I have done things differently? Yeah, absolutely. But QPR weren't in the same kind of strategy as doing that Man City role, going from, you know, winning the league to be a global brand. You know, QPR at the time were about literally just making sure they stayed out of the fourth category and, and stayed in the third, which is just remaining in the Premier League. So that needs a really, really different strategy. And, you know, for me, the, the, the club has to be aligned on that. And that wasn't, you know, if everybody has kind of different plans of which category they want to be and how it's done, um, then it makes it impossible to do your job which happens an awful lot in football clubs. So purpose, what category? And then the second thing is clarity. And this is, this, is the, this is the big thing for me, which is really lacking inside football. You asked the question early on about, you know, what's the roles and responsibilities? What's the, how do you, do you class that? Um, there's still an awful lot of internal challenges that you have, and maybe a bit of external, but, you know, you, it doesn't really matter what the media and the fans, well, it does matter what the media and the fans think, but it doesn't affect your day-to-day job. What affects the day-to-day job is the clarity of the operations inside the football club and who does what and how. Um, so they're, they're the really two most important underpinning aspects of understanding how you approach each job you go into, and that has to be set from the top. And unfortunately, the ones where you find it's dysfunctional, it's quite often because them two factors aren't working properly. You know, there's not a clarity on purpose. There's no no clarity on actual roles and responsibility. And then that means there's very much a dysfunctional operation inside the club, which which doesn't tend itself to success. And you speak about purpose and clarity. I think we've had the best example, prime example in years this season in the Premier League in terms of when a club isn't aligned on those four fronts and that would be of Everton because seeing in the past the type of personnel they've actually recruited for that director of football role you have the likes of Steve Walsh the likes of Marcel Brands coming from that recruitment point of view but in the midst of what happened this season they appoint Kevin Pellwell who of course comes from a more player development and academy background I think Mike and I think you'll agree there's been no better case example of that playing out in recent Premier League years than what's happened at Everton this season. Yeah, I, I can't I can't pass com- comments and judgments on Everton because I, I, you know I, I, looking from the outside it's not been great in terms of you know how they've you know fought their way out of relegation this season. Um, 
and I know, you know, Steve and I know Marcel and I know Kev, all three of them really well. And all three of them are extremely capable operators. So I, I can't pass comment on what it's like inside the club, but something clearly hasn't worked because, you know, a club of Everton size wouldn't have been, you know, in the situation they have been over the last number of years. But what I do hope um, now, you know, with Kev at the helm, that, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, the the escape that they've had this season, not getting dragged into that, you know, that relegation battle on the last day of the season. Um, you know, I hope now there is some clarity and, you know, understanding inside the club because a club of Everton side shouldn't, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't be in that, that state. Because it's, there is one thing you said on a previous podcast, which has struck a chord with me and that's, you discussed a role saying your job is to link the income with the outcome. But the paradox at the same time is you're playing a long-term game, but being judged on that short-term success. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. You are, you are being judged, but again, that depends on what the, the clarity of and purpose of the ownership above you think that you know you, your job as a, as a sporting director, technical director, is to support the manager, the head coach, to be successful now because the club needs to be successful in the short term but also linking that with the business objectives. And, and if I go back and use the example of when I was at Manchester City, that was the first time that I'd truly gone into a job and then understood that I had to step out my comfort zone of the football world and understand the business model. Because what the business strategy of the club was trying to achieve by becoming a global brand, I couldn't just isolate myself in a football world and not connect with it. So... You know, the business strategy is not just about balance sheets and finance. You know, it's not just the hard, you know, financial budgeting issues that you have to think about. It's more of the strategic objectives of what all the business departments were doing. And I remember, you know, thinking at the time, well, if I don't, if I don't make an effort of literally physically getting down to the stadium, which where all the business was, and being inside meetings there and going away on off-sites, I'm going to get left behind because I'm going to have this football plan, which doesn't doesn't take you know doesn't doesn't dovetail with the business you know the football plan, which doesn't dovetail with the business plan. And I remember that period of, of getting into this business world, understanding what their objectives were, and then thinking, right, how can I relate this to you know what I'm um, you know what I'm what we are trying to achieve on a on a football side. Um, so. You, you've you've always got the difficult challenge. Yes, you are judged on twice a year how the transfer window goes. And then, you know, someone was saying to me, in fact, yesterday at this business meeting, they were talking about this, about their board meetings. And I said, well, you know, we have board meetings every Saturday because you're, you're kind of being judged by the fans and the media every Saturday on the results. But then clubs internally have to kind of figure out a better way of doing this. And when you have got very stable very organized very structured ownership that it's 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 a lot easier to you know not get dragged into the noise of the match day because there's ups and downs and there always will be and always try and think of how do we support the head coach to do his job now and that's also you know transfer window and bringing the players in but at the same time have this long term plan so the player pathway the academy you know the the business plans you're also part of that. And it's a challenge because quite often the noise of the results, you know, on a match day do impact the way that people think. Um, 
It's really interesting. It's fascinating. We haven't even taken into consideration the cultural context of it too, because often we see on the continent the sporting director is a figure who sits on the top, who sits on the bench with the coach. I'm thinking the likes of Hassan Salahamovic, Bayern Munich, Max Erb, Rossi Munson Gladbach, and it, it's very different to the sporting director in the UK who often work more in the shadows. I mean, I can't think off the top of my head, for example, of a single interview Michael Edwards has done during his tenure throughout Liverpool. Um, you know, playing devil's advocate here, Mike, is there a fear that when things go wrong, that the sport director doesn't do enough for the coach? I don't understand the question. Yeah, and... Um, Comparing to the sporting director model from the UK to what it looks like on a continent where we see that they're a visible approach, they're there on the touchline. Um, yeah. is, there a, is there a fear from fans going forward that this role of sporting director, as of course we've seen a more continental yeah. approach? That, that <clears throat> I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I also felt, feel very strongly that you know, I've been around um, recently a couple of members from the press who came into the technical director's license and it's like, well, you know, you guys should be in the press a lot more and talking every day. And that's not, you know, that's not what I think our role is. Our, our, our role's not about, you know, this outfacing kind of facade of what I think sitting on the bench and jumping up and down and yes, communicating to the fans and doing press and media is an important thing, but quite often, we don't want to do it because you want to stay under the radar because you just want to focus on doing your job. And there's a number of, you know, there's a number of guys in these clubs, that, like you said, Michael Edwards, you, you know, Johan Lang of Villa. And, you know, I can't remember many interviews that Dan Ashworth's given and the likes. Um, that's because they just want to focus on doing the job. And I think if you're coming into this job because you're desperate to be famous, you're in it for the wrong reason. Um, what you, you know, yes, you do get, I mean, I was talking to, John Rudkin, you know, recently on some of the challenges he had from, you know, being in Leicester, being there for a long time, winning the Premier League with, with Leicester and then, and then changing the coach and not winning, you know, and being judged by the media and the fans during that journey. You know, John Rudkin's not gone from being a sport director that's won the Premier League to someone who's you know, not won the Premier League the year after and he's significantly you know, changed in the qualities of his job. But I, I don't think our role is to be out there to be, you know, talking about us and our role on a regular basis. I mean, I love I love doing these podcasts if it's talking about the role because I don't think we talk about the role enough. But at the same time, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's necessary that the sporting directors constantly sat on the bench talking to the media, talking to the press. You know, a lot of people like to do the job and maybe talk about it after. You know, and... And, you know, cheeky at Man City now. Let the football do its talking and, you know, let Pep and the players get the plaudits. Yeah. It, it's very interesting because it's like the case of the hippo. And you look at American sports, the GMs often kind of facing the media and whatnot. And I think as we take a more decentralised approach to kind of, I mean, there's very few, as I can see nowadays, managers that are in charge of the whole club really your first team coaches um, moving on and looking at another topic of fascination really is that of player recruitment and of course I know well documented during your time at Manchester City it's one thing to identify a Yaya Torre, David Silva, a Conaguero but I mean take us inside it's another thing signing them 
what does that entire process entail and look like? Uh, quite often it's very difficult because uh, you are playing a challenging game with selling clubs and agents and players themselves. Um, I, I'll answer it in this way. In our very early days of, of being at Manchester City, there was there was me, um, I had the team of scouts that we brought in, you know, Barry Hunter, Alan Watson, Dave Fallows, all these brilliant, you know, great people who are still in the game. You know, Jules Ward was there, Rob Newman, who's now at West Ham. Um, you know, we had a really good team of people that we all worked really closely. And, you know, the signings weren't made by me. The signings were part of a very strong team effort and the team, you know, that I was very fortunate to to oversee. But they were the they were the brains behind it because of the work that they did. Um, what um, what what happened is we went out, we travelled, we watched games, we compiled reports, we did, you know, we had extensive discussions in terms of what we thought with the quality for us. But you know, I'd sit down with the managers, I'd sit down with the board, we'd get the deal done. Fast forward now, ten to twelve years, there are layers upon layers upon layers of information now that really gets to the heart of the quality of the player, real due diligence. So we're talking, you know, data and analytics, and there are multiple layers of data analytics. I'm working with a company at the moment in America called Blue Chip that use social media to analyze players' personality profiles. Fascinating. I mean, um, there's the normal, you know, event data, there's physical data, there's video analytics. There's, you know, I go back to the, wasn't that long ago, I was at Blackburn in the early days of Man City. We couldn't do any video scouting because one, the broadband wasn't you know, as good. And there wasn't companies like Scout and Insta around to provide you with the coverage. So the only way you could do the original scouting was live work. Now we've got data analysts. Now we've got multiple technology platforms to help you this, do this. So the due diligence now is far more thorough, analyzing injuries, analyzing physical, analyzing games, analyzing players and personalities and backgrounds. But the decision-making process now is harder than it ever has been because the more you look, the deeper you look, the more there will be some kind of red flag about a player lined up because the perfect player doesn't exist. So we were very fortunate that we were doing all this work with players, but it was quite simple because it was one source, which was live scouting mainly. But along the way, you also have to develop relationships. You have to kind of get market insight and knowledge. You've got to schmooze, you know, you've got to go out there. And, you know, there's countless times we were out traveling to meet agents, players, families, to, to talk to them about why would you want to come to our club? This is what we can do. These are the, this is where you can live. You know, you're doing all the sales bit, developing that relationship because you, you're trying to encourage a player to come to your club. Yes, there's the obvious finances, but quite often you're talking to a player that can go to a number of different clubs and the finances are pretty much the same and they're going to be extremely wealthy wherever they go. But you've got to try and convince this player why coming to this club would be the best thing uh, and and what we can put around you and how we can support. So really to answer your question, it's gone from just live scouting to multiple types of scouting and the skill set has to be different. And then it's harder to make a decision but there's then the, all the non-football elements of negotiations and relationship building that are part of the whole transfer, you know, the, the whole acquisition process. 
all of which all the clubs that are going through the transfer window and when it's seen, you know, all over Sky News and the, the Sky Sports News and the, the fans are going mad because we haven't signed a player or they've lost out on a player or you've got to understand that all this is going off behind the scenes, which some of it's out, not in your control. It's not just about finding a good player. It's all of the things which quite often are outside your control. That means, you know, you do or you don't get the player. And it's really subjective to look at who is best in class, but it's nonetheless, I caveat that by saying, it's hard to look past Liverpool. You speak about Barry Hunter, the likes of Dave Fellows, obviously a more traditional live scouting approach combined with the names of Michael Edwards. We've seen Julian Ward inside, Dr. Ian Grimm. What they do nowadays with analytics analytics is completely insane and beyond the charts, really. But it's, it's not really a fine art or a fine science. It's a combination of both approaches, which I think you've given great insight into. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like I said, purpose and clarity. You know, I, I, I don't, I couldn't tell you as though I know inside out what Liverpool, I don't, I know the guys, I don't know the details. But what's really interesting is, I think there's a real clear purpose of what the ownership, you know, want from the top. Um, and I also think then there's clarity inside the organisation of how they all want to work together to get the required outcome. Um, when that's lacking inside football clubs, that's when chaos ensues. I mean, as we reflect back upon your career, Mike, something which we discussed briefly off camera, and everything is fine with 2020 vision, but is there any decision that you reflect upon which you wish you would have chosen differently? Um, no, I, I think I'm not one to sit back and regret what I've done. I'm not, because I've had good, I've had good times and bad times. I, I, I'd sit back and think, would I have done things differently? Absolutely. You know, I... You know, I, I left I left the Welsh FA at the right time and I went to to do a different job at Sheffield Wednesday and then went to Blackburn to do a different and they were very much different circumstances. You know, I was really, really blessed to be part of that first four-year transition of, of Manchester City from what it was. Um, the first time which I, you know, I sit back and think, not, not a case of making the right decision, but doing things. I, I wish I'd done things differently when I'd gone from... Um, I, I wish I'd, I'd done things differently when I've left Manchester City and gone to QPR because in, on hindsight what I would think I was trying to do it, it, it um, wasn't quite you know everything about the academy it just wasn't the right setup um, and and I think you know I think back to QPR I think I tried to do everything within two months and it just wasn't right um, all, all jobs I sit back and reflect would I have done things differently? Um, but yeah, I would, but I don't regret any of them um, because even some of the good, you know, the challenges experiences you always learn from because, you know, everybody says it's about, you know, failure and being able to recover from that. Nobody goes through, you know, their careers where everything just goes to plan. Um, and, you know, I look at some of the more detailed aspects of, um, you know, signing a player, not signing a player. Why did we lose out on a player? Did we do the negotiations right? Did we follow the process properly? Should have changed the structure slightly and done things differently? But you know, I don't, I don't regret any of it. I, I kind of just reflect and I'm very lucky that I've had some, you know, extremely rewarding experiences. And finally, before we close, an absolutely fascinating and enlightening conversation with yourself, Mike. I mean, for those who are inspired, haven't heard you document your journey and 
quite great detail and that wish to embark upon a similar journey and follow that sporting director career path. What advice would you have for them? It doesn't happen overnight. So I have, um, I have this probably have a similar kind of conversation, Zoom call messages with probably two or three people a week going, you know, what I'd love to become a technical director, a sporting director, what do we do? Right, I've just finished my degree or I've just come out of school and I go, great. You've got to get time, you've got to get experiences, you've got to get skill set. You've got to be prepared and it's never going to be a straight path. You might find yourself, you know, I started off in a community scheme, coaching in schools and setting soccer schools. I had no plan to become a sporting director because that job didn't exist. But I was prepared to put myself out, work hard, get experiences, get contacts, go on courses, um, all of which lead up to your skill set. Um, and, and I, you know, I call it kind of like the, the broadband and the Netflix culture now. Everybody wants it, wants it now, and it doesn't always work that way. So I think if you do want to go on that journey, you've got to be prepared to go along a path which often take changes um, and take a few risks and be prepared to get a few bumps and bruises. That's just the nature of football. Um, but it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Mike, it's been an absolutely pleasure having you on. Connor, good luck. <laughs>